Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-mid year session number 561. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an awesome guest today, someone who I met many years ago at a conference at their medical school. And today I'm going to talk to Laurel Poole, the Director of Admissions at UCF College of Medicine. That's in Orlando, Florida. And we're going to talk about, uh, and what I love, is the transparency at the medical school. What are they looking for? What are they not looking for? Uh, What does the admissions process look like? These are the types of episodes that I have always wanted to bring you, and we've brought you a lot of them, and this is an awesome conversation with Laurel about UCF and the director of admissions kind of role and what she does and what the the process is, and again, the, the transparency part we've talked about uh, several times on our conversation today or in our conversation today because that is a big part of this process for me is making this process more transparent for you. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minute. It's brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. It is January 2024. If you're listening to this in the future, I hope everything is good with you. Uh, but MCAT timing is is now, right? Students are taking the MCAT January, March, April to get ready to apply. But what have you been doing to get ready for that? Go over to blueprintmcat.com today. Sign up for their free account and get access to their study planner tool to make sure that you have the perfect schedule for you to make sure that you're getting in uh, all of the studying that you have to do with the schedule that you have and all the other kind of time requirements on your plate. Go over to blueprintmcat.com today. Sign up for that free account. Let's go and jump in and say hello to Laurel. Laurel, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I would love to ask, my, my normal first question is like, when did you want to become a doctor? But that is not who you are. You are the director of admissions at UCF Medical School. When did you like stumble into this whole medical education world? So I'm at about nine and a half years here at the medical school. I've been working at the University of Central Florida for the past 16 and a half years. I started in undergraduate admissions and then I worked in advising for a few years. And then there was an opening to work at the medical school in admissions. And I had loved admissions work. I love the, you know, being 
there for the students kind of at the beginning of a process and obviously medical school is a heightened process and a very exciting time for applicants. So um, when that opportunity presented itself, I applied and was fortunate enough to be selected to be the assistant director, which I did for a few years. And then when my predecessor retired, I was selected to be the director of admissions. So I've been doing, I've been the director since, I was the interim director since 2019. And that lasted about a year until you know, the hiring process ended. So I've been the formal director since 2020. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. My relationship with the medical school at UCF uh, through this podcast, I had the dean of the medical school on many, many years ago. One of the mm-hmm. first, I think, 20 episodes. I think she was actually episode 13, if I remember correctly. I didn't look before. Uh, I had... Um, uh, I don't know if she's still the dean. I had her on Dr. German. Is that her name? Uh, yeah, Dr. German on the podcast. And then, uh, we've met a couple times at, uh, various Mm -hmm. times, uh, coming onto the campus, the undergraduate institution puts on a fantastic conference at the medical school, uh, typically every year. I don't know if they still do it post COVID. They they do. It's back in person. Back in person. Every February. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So for anyone watching in in the Central Florida area or can make it to the Central Florida area, there's an awesome conference uh, at the medical school. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so we've we've communicated. And one of the things that I loved, and I I actually was telling this story very recently. I remember being at the conference, uh, talking to your predecessor, Rel, the the former director of admissions there. And there was a non-traditional student who drove down, I believe drove down from Indiana, um, asking a question about being a non-traditional student. And and her concern was, hey, I'm a non-traditional student and I'm just really worried because of my responsibilities of being an older, uh, an older applicant. I have to work and I have family and whatever, that my activities aren't going to measure up. And, and Rel being very transparent was like, Hey, we understand and we take that into account and have no fear, right? We we look at everyone a little bit differently. Uh, I'm just wondering from from your point of view in terms of transparency of this process, one of my big motivations with everything I do is trying to increase this transparency. And it sounds like that is something that has been set up at your medical school is like, "Hey, we want to be more transparent. Is is that something that you are that you're doing intentionally? Yes, it is very intentional, and it was something I learned from my predecessor. Um, and really, I tell this to the students: it's a lot less work for me actually just to tell you what's going on than the <laughs> amount of time I would probably spend answering emails and phone calls of very frantic applicants who want to know what's going on. So yeah. it it's not intentionally self-serving, but it does save you a lot of time just letting people know where they stand, even if it's not what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. At least they know. And I, you know, my my personal philosophy is to be honest with applicants because I don't want to give people a false sense of hope. There is a, a it's so competitive. There's just yeah. thousands of people that want very few spots. And even among those that get interviewed, you know, the competition just increases among that group. So, um, you know, I do try to be very honest with students when I look at their application, just from my years of experience of, you know, serving on screening committees, sitting in on the admissions committee and and hearing what the faculty like, what they don't like, what they're looking for, um, and trying to give people an honest, some honest feedback. And, we aren't able to give everybody personalized feedback all the time because there's just 
too many people that want that service. We, you know, we've created a page on our website that helps students sort of look at their application and compare it to what we sort of expect. And, you know, you mentioned a non-traditional applicant, not everybody's going to fit into that mold and they may, you know, you know, with non-traditional students, I guess I have a soft spot for them because I know they're very limited on resources in terms of who they can get advice from. And I don't want people spending their time or their money, especially those who have limited time um, because of other obligations to do things that are detrimental to a future application. Um, so, you know, we do give individual feedback where we can, but we've also set up, you know, a page on our website to help give people some guidance onto the, do, you know, sort of what we expect to see. Yeah. So someone's going to listen to this and go, oh, I can, I can reach uh, yeah. out to Laurel and, and the whole team uh, and they're going to, yeah. who, who <laughs> is the perfect person to reach out, right? Because my, my biggest pet peeve is someone who writes this tome. It's like 20 paragraphs, their whole story. And you're reading the whole thing going, where's the question? <laughs> like, what are you right. trying to ask me here? <laughs> What's the perfect situation for someone to reach out um, and and ask a question where you can give them an answer? Um, I mean, most people on my team can respond to most, you know, just an overview of looking quickly at an app, you know, what an applicant says. Mm -hmm. I would say most applicants, they, in their heart, they know what the weaknesses are. Sometimes <laughs> people just want some affirmation, yep. but um you know, if it's a Apple, if it's somebody that doesn't meet our minimum criteria, we're not going to spend a lot of time getting into the weeds about volunteer hours and shadowing. Like you need to get to the the baseline first, yeah. And then we stat, can go from stat wise. There. You're talking about stats, yeah. yeah. If you don't even have the GPA and the MCAT, then you know the rest of it doesn't matter because it won't even be considered. Yeah. If you're somebody who we interview and you end up in a position where you're not going to be accepted, you know those people, I'm I'm happy to give them feedback because they got so close. And, yeah. you know, there may just be a few little tweaks that need to be done, you know, if they expect to apply again. Sometimes people are just, they're just dying. They just want to know, even if they've gotten acceptance somewhere else, they just want to know where did I go wrong? Because they can't stand the, um, <laughs> this is the first but, time I've, I've been rejected. I know. Yeah. But, you know, if it's somebody that looks like they're going to have to reapply them and we've interviewed them, I'm happy to give them some more directed feedback so they can fix those things. And we've seen many times where people you know, listen, apply what we say and reapply. And they are successful in the getting into medical school. But, you know, you have to do your research, ask questions. You may email all the directors of admissions and maybe one or two answers you, yeah. but at least you have somebody who will give you, I, I think you, you'll find somebody who's willing to give a little feedback. Yeah. And students should be kind of used to those sorts of odds like because they need to reach out for shadowing you're going to ask 20 right. 30 doctors and one person's going to say yes like great yeah. and it's kind of the same thing here so there, there's mm -hmm. a couple couple things i want to follow up on based on what you just said uh number one you talked about stats right and i think <clears throat> there's a a common misconception of what holistic admissions is that I can have a 2.0 GPA and a, a 480 MCAT score, but look at all of my experiences. I'm going to overcome. And, and you're saying you got to meet our minimums. Do you publicize those minimums? We do. They're all over our website, our view <laughs> book. We're very clear what the minimum criteria is. And, um, you know, part one of the most, I think, important jobs of our admissions co committee, our screening process is to 
try to select students that we think can get through the curriculum. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa and you've done all the extracurriculars. If you can't pass the classes, yeah. you're never going to become a doctor. Yeah. So we're not doing you any favors by letting you in because you were the most you know, altruistic person that there ever was. So we, we have a responsibility to our applicants to try and make sure we accept people who have demonstrated. And, and, you know, a lot of times students will have reasons why their grades are what they are, their MCAT is what it is. But at the end of the day, we can only go off the information that we have. So in the yeah. track record that you have, and if it doesn't lead us to believe you're going to survive in our curriculum, then there's no reason to put somebody forward for an interview or to accept them. Yeah. I I get blamed often. <laughs> I get blamed for a lot of things. I get blamed <laughs> often for putting too much hope into students' hearts. Uh, students who are, are uh, a lot of non-traditional students fall into this where they really struggled in undergrad. Maybe they, they didn't know what they wanted to do at that point in their life, or they had other responsibilities supporting their family financially, wh- whatever um, may be. And, and they have a 2.7 GPA, which is super common. I don't know why that one always comes up, but then they do a post back and it's like, Hey, I got, I, I finally figured out that I want to be a doctor. I had this experience. This is what I want to do. I finally have a direction in life and they get a 4.0 during a, a pretty rigorous post back. And they're, they're showing this academic record, which is what you're saying is like, Hey, show us that you can handle our curriculum. And I, I tell students all the time, like, First and foremost, the schools, uh, holistic admissions, right? This this generic term that everyone throws out. First and foremost, stats have to prove that you're going to pass medical school because number one, you're not, they're doing you a disservice to accept you. And then you have all of this debt that you don't have a degree to support. And number right. two, they're judged on it, right? You as an admissions committee, you as a medical school, when when the LCME, LCME comes in and says, okay, show me, show me your pass rates, show me all of the students who had to repeat or show me all the students that dropped out. Like, why are you accepting these students? That that goes against exactly. you guys as well. So, um, And some medical schools are more set up to work with students who maybe need some remediation or need yeah. some, you know, kind of like a boot camp at the beginning. Not yep. every medical school is set up to onboard a large number of students who may be a higher risk academically based on their undergraduate performance or MCAT, things like that. Yeah. So I, I know you can only answer for your school, but I, I want to try to pry out of you. Why aren't more med schools transparent with their their cutoffs? Um, well, UCF is a newer medical school. We're not a baby anymore, probably more like a, a teenager at this point. Um, you know, we've graduated, I think it'll be 11 classes this year. So um, I think we have the benefit because we're newer, because the faculty that we have, a lot of them came here when there was no building, no curriculum, no nothing. So they kind of have that more innovative, pioneering spirit that there's more openness to doing things differently than probably schools that are more established. I've heard many of my colleagues talk about their admissions committee and kind of the influence the committee has over the admissions process. You know, my job is obvious is not selecting the class. My job is more administrative in nature. I don't I, you know, I call to make the offers, but I didn't make the decision. So um, I think because maybe some of the faculty at other schools are you know, they've always done things one way. It's, you know, it's a secretive process. We don't want anybody to know anything. 
you know, I don't get that it's always the admissions directors that they wish they could give out more information, but yeah. they're more controlled by their committee. I think um, a lot of it is because, you know, my former boss, like he, he was the first director here. Like he set up the whole admissions process and people had a lot of trust in him to do things the way he thought we should do them. And being very transparent was how he thought we should do things. And that's what I have continued that no one really questioned it. And that's just what we've done yeah. is let people know what's going on. Like if you interview with us, you know exactly when we're going to call you, you know what the outcomes could be. We tell you that ahead of time. And then we update you every single month from that point. If you're on the alternate list, you're going to know every month where you stand and sort of what the chances are over time. Yeah. So we, you know, it's just something I think that was set in place and maybe it's just because we are newer that we have that advantage. I love it. I love that mindset, which is great. I wish, I wish more people had that mindset. Um, so let's, let's talk about the process, right? Uh, when someone applies, they have to meet the minimums. If not, uh, do you guys screen for secondaries? Or you just send secondaries to everyone. Yeah. So you screen for secondaries. If they don't meet minimums, I'm assuming they're not going to get a secondary. Um, what does that next step look like? A student has their primary in, their secondaries in, MCAT score, letters of rec. The, the application is complete for all intents and purposes. What, what happens next? So once we have completed applications in August, we start reviewing applications for interview consideration. So we have a unique screening process. Um, when I first started, there were five of us, I believe, that served on the screening committee and would review tons and tons of applications a week to decide who gets interviewed. As time went on, we kind of burned out the faculty who were doing that and because it's very time consuming, it's yeah. a lot of work. So um, what we decided to do was reach out to volunteer faculty or other faculty here at the comm to see if anyone else was interested in doing this. And much to our shock, a lot of people were interested. Yeah. So we now have, uh, it's at least 30. So we have six teams of five faculty, wow. community physicians and faculty who review applications. So they each have a team. They get sent about 20 applications a week. Every week they meet, they discuss those applicants and they decide who's going to be interviewed. So we're just batching these applications every week, sending them to the screening faculty. And then from there, once they've decided who they want to interview, either uh, myself or my assistant director will uh, call or email the applicant to let them know that we would like to interview them. And then they go on our secondary site and schedule themselves and proceed through interviews and then getting reviewed by the admissions committee. The, the reviewers that you have, these uh, six teams of five, um, mm. do, do each of those reviewers have kind of free reign, like pick who you like, um, or is there kind of a set rubric that you, you guys are looking at to go, these are the things that we want our class to look like and the experiences we want them to have, so go find these people. Yeah, they do have a rubric and we do have an orientation every summer before they get started. You know, we have people been doing it for years and then we have pe new people every year. Yeah. So um, we educate them on our, you know, what we're looking for in an applicant, what the dean wants in our medical students and what we've seen to be uh, characteristics that have been successful in our class. So um, they are given a sort of a directive as to what to look for. Obviously, you know, there are going to be unique cases. They, you know, we tell them. You know, not everybody's going to fit the mold. Not everybody's going to be checking all the boxes. So we do consider, you know, the life of the person, the road traveled, all of those different things. 
And they really do a very thorough job reviewing these applications and considering all those factors. So, you know, we've got people with the best metrics and nothing else, and they're not getting through. And then the opposite of that. So, um, but they really use a, a humanistic approach to reviewing the applications. Yeah. Talk, talk about that because I think that it's it's a myth that I'm continually trying to fight, right? Those, those students with the best metrics. There's there's this assumption that you, you go on to a student doctor network. We were talking before mm-hmm. uh, we hit record. And, and these students, whether they're real or not, who's <laughs> to say, are posting, hey, I got a 4.0 GPA at a 525 MCAT. I have 4,000 hours of clinical experience, six first, first author publications. And they list all these amazing stats and they go, I only got one interview and I was rejected and everyone else is like, well, if you can't get in, how am I going to get in? How does, let's start with the first question. How does a student like that not stand out to uh, a reviewer? What, what's in their application that the reviewer is like, "Mm, yeah, probably not. Um, well, I think a lot of it probably depends on where they apply and how their uh, their resume sort of aligns with the mission of the school and the type of applicant that they are looking to recruit. You know, we put a lot of value in medical volunteering, shadowing doctors. We want to make sure the students that we're taking in are people that really explore the career of medicine, that they know what they're getting themselves into, not showing up here and they go, this is not what I thought it was. <laughs> I'm and really smart. They, you should accept me. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of smart people and there's a lot of jobs for very smart people, but yeah. not all of them are in medicine. So you know, an applicant could have the best 4.0, 525 MCAT, but if they've demonstrated no humanism, nothing, done nothing for anybody else, no, we can't figure out what their medical motivation, like, why do you want to be a doctor? You know, sometimes we just get this feeling from an application that's, you know, you just think this is what smart people do. So you apply to medical school, but there's nothing in there that says that, you really want to be a doctor like that. You want but to be Laurel, a doctor. they like science. <laughs> I know. And luckily there's so many other jobs where you can like science and be smart and medicine. You know, it just, there's a lot of qualities that are important to being a good doctor yeah. and being smart is not the only quality. So that's why oftentimes when I see, especially when it's later in the cycle, um, or like close to our deadlines, you get these big numbers coming through where people are like finishing up their applications and, Maybe it didn't work out with the schools they thought because they had these big numbers. So now they're finishing up secondaries for schools that they think they're a shoe in. But, you know, we're, we're not interested. We may not be an Ivy League school, but we're not yeah. interested in students who don't have the heart for medicine. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how smart you are because you're not going to be as successful as somebody who maybe is has lower metrics, but really wants this because it's hard. And if you don't really want it, then it's going to be even harder to get yourself through. Yeah. Talk about, you You mentioned the school list, right? First, potentially what could have gone wrong. Uh, you mentioned fit. Unfortunately, a lot of students will use the MSAR. They'll they'll put in their MCAT, mm-hmm. they'll put in their GPA, and the MSAR will spit out a, a list of schools that kind of match with that range. And that's, yeah. that's their list. They don't put any more effort into researching the school. Like, what are they into? What, what are this, what's the mission of the school vision? Which sometimes is hard. They, they kind of all bleed yeah. together. When, when you think about UCF's mission and vision that Dr. German's putting together and, and the, the whole community's kind of putting together, how do you think students should be going about doing that sort of research so that when they do apply to your school or any other school they're applying to, that mission fit or mission alignment isn't a question? Yeah. 
I mean, you definitely need to read what's on the Amazon, <laughs> not just plug and play and see what pops out because some schools, I would say ours is a little more generic. We're not specifically looking, you know, some schools, if, if, you know, they want students who want to go into primary care that have demonstrated, you know, service in certain types of areas or people that are only from their region of the state or things like that. And if you don't read what the school is looking for and you just rely on numbers, then you may be wasting your time on Apple, on schools that are never going to entertain your application. So you, you need to do, if you're not willing to just read the MSAR, then medical school is definitely going to be difficult for you. If you don't even have the motivation to do that and yep. like think about before you start filling out secondaries and just do paying money for no reason, because there's going to be enough people who do align with the mission, do have the qualities that a school is looking for. They're not going to spend their time on somebody who has no, it doesn't appear there's any reason why they would come to that school. Yeah. One of the things that I, I try to teach students when I'm talking on podcasts and stuff is, is um, kind of a checklist mentality of an application of like, okay, check. I got, I, I, I crossed the, the threshold of a hundred hours of clinical experience or 50 hours of shadowing. I talk about recency consistency to, to show what you were talking about earlier, some of that proof that you do enjoy this world, that you um, right. are going to enjoy taking care of patients. How do you view that sort of uh, checklist mentality on an application where you, you can clearly kind of see the student did do 300 hours of clinical experience, but it was two years ago and they haven't really done anything right. since. Is that something that you guys take into account? Absolutely. We take that into account. We are in fact, the, the committee members say all the time, like that the person's a box checker. So that is <laughs> don't be a box checker. Yeah. Don't be a box checker. You know, we want people that have demonstrated a, a consistent commitment to doing these things over time, because if it was something they were passionate about, they would find the time to do it. Even if it was somebody who doesn't have a lot of time, you can get a couple of hours a week, a month, yeah. you know, shadowing, doing medical volunteering showing a medical motivation because if we look at your application you haven't shadowed in years or everything you did was over the summer just some easy time where you didn't have to balance school and all this other stuff we want people that know how to balance their time and manage their time and have shown a dedicated interest in medicine over time it's not the number of hours so much to us that matter it's the consistency over time and not just okay well i went and did habitat for humanity one saturday so my community <laughs> service is done or i shadowed one doctor three years ago for a hundred hours. So I'm done with that. That doesn't show any motivation. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned, uh, and I'm assuming you're choosing the language specifically because that's, that's what you all look for medical volunteering for a non-traditional student who maybe is a nurse and is like, okay, I'm, I want to go to med school now that I get that question a lot of like, do I need to go volunteer or does my nursing count as clinical experience? Do you see a difference there between a job and the the volunteer aspect of, of clinical experience? We do. We don't consider paid work to be volunteerism. So, um, you know, what I usually recommend to students who are, you know, that are certified to do something like you are able to volunteer in capacities that a lot of other people can't because you are a nurse or you're a PA or your, you know, whatever it is, the clinical job that they have, a medical assistant. Um, so again, even if it's not a lot of hours because you are working full time, you, you still need to get some volunteering in. Okay. Interesting. So a student 
kind of passes those initial screens. What about the students who don't? What is uh, the the box checker that hasn't proven that they want to really be a doctor yet, right? Their, their actions aren't showing that. Is there anything else big that just uh, a reviewer can immediately go, oh yeah, this, this student isn't for us? This may be one of my pet peeves and the pet peeve of some of the other committee members, but when people have an abundance of hobbies and very little of the things that we want to see, I don't even honestly know why hobbies is even an option on there. I I had many students, because I say this everywhere I go, because it is something that sinks people's battleship here all the time. Like yeah. they've got thousand hours of yoga, but they've got 20 hours of volunteering. Well, you had thousand hours for you, but no time for anybody else. Not a good look. Yeah. So, so know, it's not really it, the it, hobby, but it's a, a balance of things. Yeah, but that's never got anybody into medical school. Nobody got into medical school because they did yoga or they like to read, you know, endlessly or walk on the beach or whatever those (laughs) things are, especially if you've done all the other stuff, then fine, throw it in. If you have not done those things that we want to see, you should not be including your hobbies. Like we don't, it's better. We just don't know that you Mm. did that because otherwise it just looks like you focus, you had time for you, but no time for what you needed to have time for and to apply to medical school. There's nothing wrong with having hobbies and doing other stuff, but you know, at this point of the game, you need to be preparing for applying to medical school and your resume needs to reflect that. So you may have to put the brakes on some of your hobbies that you spend a lot of time on and focus more of that time on the other things that medical schools want to see. Yeah. How someone listening to this may go, wait a minute, I, t- I talked to a director of admissions at this other school and they're like, we love hobbies. Um, how, how is a student supposed to reconcile differing opinions? Well, you're not going to please every <laughs> medical school. That, nope. that you have to come to terms with. Um, you know, and I know because I have students telling me, oh, well, I read on this or I saw this that, you know, they want to see this well-rounded applicant. So they want to include those things, but I'm talking about the people that have like an obscene number of hobby hours and yeah. very little of other yeah. stuff. I can't imagine there's too many medical schools that are like, oh, I don't care if you barely shadowed. I love that you were, I don't know, playing ping pong for a thousand hours. Like, <laughs> it's amazing. I, I can't imagine a world where that is hundred percent good enough. Yeah. Good enough. Yeah. It's one of those things when I'm scrolling through at least the PDF printout of the application and I'm like, I see a hobby and I'm like, okay, cool. And then I scroll and it's another hobby. I'm like, okay. Right, and I scroll and it's another hobby and I'm like, okay, now this is too much. Like what, why do you have three hobbies in here and yeah, one clinical experience for, for 20 hours? So, so definitely. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely that that balance there that is important. And and exactly, I think it's it's hard for students to really understand the the application is this the only kind of context and snapshot that you have an opportunity to give an admissions committee. And mm-hmm. on the AMCAS application specifically, you're limited to those 15 spots. Three of them can be most meaningful. And you are choosing to highlight this thing and not this other thing. And you're applying to medical school and it's like, we can make some better decisions here. Right. I mean, it's a job application. You need to think of it that way. Like this is professional. It's not, you know, putting like just silly things in an application. It just doesn't scream maturity. It doesn't scream that you're taking it seriously. So you really have to think about what you include, you know, 
topics that you include in yeah. your essays, all this kind of stuff, because the maturity factor is really important because you're going to be having some work where that requires a lot of maturity. So we want to make sure people are ready. And sometimes people just aren't ready when they're applying and they yeah. need a little more time. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to change topics uh, briefly for a second. Uh, this past cycle was the first cycle that no longer had the disadvantaged statement and now has the other impactful experiences. How has your committee kind of used that new essay to to help give context to a student's application? I mean, we basically use this in the same kind of way. We look at all the information that an applicant includes and, you know, we have certain things we ask on our secondary. And then, of course, that part of the AMCAS application just helps us to understand a person's life, their circumstances, how they got to this point, what may have impacted them positively or negatively up till now. So it's all just a, a big picture of yeah. the person's life to help put into context all the rest of the application material. Because if we see, you know, a person had a difficult upbringing or limited resources, obviously our expectations of certain things are going to vary person to person. Um, so that's, it's really just to give more context yeah. to the life of the person leading up to applying. Yeah, definitely. I, I loved the change. Um, my, my assumption is the change was, was based on the affirmative action stuff going away, but I, there were so many students who looked at that disadvantaged question, like, do I mark myself disadvantaged? Do I not? Is, yeah. is, am I, am I dis- a lot of times people, you read their application and you think, well, you've got some material in here that would yeah. definitely qualify some explanation under that. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of times people don't see themselves that way. And that's great that they just overcome and they just yeah. get through it and they don't see that. And sometimes people would use it and it really wasn't appropriate. So <laughs> um, their their idea of disadvantage wasn't always like, in yep. a greater scheme, quite as disadvantaged as some yeah. other people's yeah. circumstances. I, I, my, my hyperbolic uh, kind of statement around that was always like, you can't complain about only having two butlers when everyone else had three. Like right. that's not a disadvantage. Right. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's all relative. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the reviewers are looking through the application, and and the students are looking great. They meet minimum stats, and they have some good experiences. It looks like they understand why they want to do this. When it comes to the secondary, right? And you mentioned earlier, you guys screen for secondaries. Mm-hmm. What are you looking to get out of the secondary process? Or are those questions that you guys are shaping every year? Or you kind of have have your set questions and and they're great based based on a mission fit for the school. What what are you looking to get out of the secondary process? Um, a few of the questions relate to the interest at UCF. You know, we would like to know what interest somebody has, particularly because we take a pretty good number of out of state students. Um, you know, if they have any kind of affiliation with the state or the university. Um, it also gives us a little insight into how much research an applicant has done about the school, you know, what they write in there. There's a couple of short essays um, that give us a little more information about the applicant's thought process and, um, you know, why they want to go into medicine, things like that. And then our, our main essay, and we do change them a little bit year to year, not, we haven't changed them a lot in the past couple of years, but, you know, the main one, it just tries to get down to, kind of more the uniqueness of the applicant. What are they going to bring to the College of Medicine? Gives them an opportunity to give a little more of their backstory um, than maybe the AMCAS essay does. Okay. 
When a student gets invited for an interview and then ultimately is rejected, is that an, a, a statement on their interview skills and how interview day went? Or can other weaknesses from their primary, potentially secondary application come back up when the admissions committee is, is meeting and, and talking about that student? So I would say more often than not, it's not the interview that's the problem. Most people mm. interview just fine. Um, you know, they may not blow it out of the water, but they were perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, it's because the admissions committee is going to review everything. Okay. Everything's Again. fair game. Everything's fair game. And they, okay. none of them serve on the initial screening committee. So they, this is all new to these people. Um, the interview is just one factor. It is, you know, an important factor because it gives us some insight into the person's communication skills, maturity, medi medical motivation, things like that. Um, but it's just one factor. And a lot of times when I am giving feedback, you know, because people always think it was the interview, they're like, well, I got this far. And then I, you know, ended up at the bottom of the wait list. So it had to be the interview. And a lot of times it's not, Yeah, it's just in combination of everything else compared to the rest of that smaller group that's getting interviewed, you know, some things were weaker and even just the differences between you know, the top part of the alternate list to the bottom, it may not even be that many points really mm -hmm. um, that separate people. It's just compared to the big group, you were the best of the best. And now you got into this more competitive group and you may not rise to the top of that particular group. Yeah. And and just for clarification, for someone listening who, who hear, who just heard you say points, I I'm guessing what, what you're referring to for students who don't understand how a rubric kind of converts an application into a score. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. The, at some schools, the MCAT and GPA have to meet those minimums and then they get thrown out and it's just essays and interview and stuff. Are, are MCAT and GPA part of that, um, admissions committee process? Again, that's fair game as well. Yes, they are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So how is a student, when they look back, besides reaching out to you and flooding your, your inbox and phones, what do you think is a great way for a student to think about the process and, and kind of do a, a post-mortem and, and go, where did I go wrong with my application cycle? Um, well, like I said, we do have a, like a self-assessment on our website that gives a breakdown of the kind of things we're looking for so that they can take their application, look at what we're looking for and figure out where the weaknesses are. What we used to do years ago when we had the bandwidth to do it, um, we would have the applicants who wanted feedback send us a self-assessment and then we um, would give them feedback based on that. And most all the time, people knew exactly what was wrong with their application. So I think applicants are rarely surprised when we say like these things were weaker, mm -hmm. these things were the strengths. So I think that they, they generally do know which parts of their applications are strong. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would say most people are pretty appreciative of the feedback, even if again, it's not what you want to hear, but you know, at least they have a point to go off of. Cause obviously they think when they're applying that their application is really good. Otherwise they wouldn't be applying and a lot of times people are just lost because they don't know what what wasn't the strong points of the application. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just kind of combing through and you, I mean, I think you could use our self-assessment sheet to help any applicant. Yeah. You mentioned earlier 
uh, students who take that feedback, reapply and, and, and get in, hopefully. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are a lot of students out there who think, number one, being a reapplicant is bad. And so they, they wait and they wait and they wait until they think their application is perfect. And then the other side of it is students that think that being a reapplicant is what you need to do. And so they throw in a kind of a garbage application just to get their, their first application under their belt. How do you view reapplications and multiple MCATs and, and some missteps along the way? So one of the first things we ask in our secondary is what have you done since your last application if you're a reapplicant? And that is something I think all of us that look at applications hone in on. Yeah. Uh, because we want to know what have you done since last time? It's there's nothing wrong with being a reapplicant. A lot of people are reapplicants and get into medical school. Um what matters is what you've done since your last application. What a lot of people do is they apply they sit back, do nothing, the whole admission cycle. Then they get to the end. Yeah, they're coasting. They're enjoying <laughs> the time, downtime. Yep. And then they get to March, April. They've had no interviews or very few, and there's no success. And now they need to reapply. Well, because they don't – who wants to have that kind of patience? Yeah. What I tell students, and I always tell them, you don't want to hear what I have to say. What I have to say is that you need to take a year – Mm-hmm. And do all the things like I know you don't want to do that. You just want to throw an application out again right now. Yeah. But basically, it's going to be the same one that you just submitted mm-hmm. and you're going to get the same result. So it's better to take a year off, fix all the holes and then apply. Yeah. You know, I know for students, especially ones like coming right out of undergrad and they've got, all they've done is go to school since they were five years old. So the, <laughs> that like a year is an eternity, but a year is, I promise is not, it, yeah. it goes by, it goes by, I tell them it goes by a lot faster when you have a lot of interviews. <laughs> so it's very painful when you have nothing and you're waiting for someone to call you. So it's better to take that. It's well, what's best to do is when you're applying initially, keep doing all the stuff. Yeah. that you were doing and keep building your resume. So that way, even if you, cause a lot of good applicants aren't going to get in, there's too many good ones and there's not enough spots for everybody. So yeah. then at least when, when you apply the next cycle, you've got your applications even better than it was the last time. If you just sit back and coast for a year thinking it's all going to work out and it doesn't, then now you have to take that year really to be successful. If you would have just kept going with stuff, then you may not have had to do that. Yeah. No, my, my general statement again around that is is being a reapplicant generally is is not bad, right? There are some schools that have some some weirdness around that. Like Harvard's like you can't apply to us more than twice. I'm like, "Okay, Harvard, thank you." Um uh but being a reapplicant in of itself isn't bad. Reapplying with the same application that caused that had issues the first time is, is what's right. bad, right? It shows no self-reflection, shows no growth. It shows no uh, independent ability to to do something to, to change. So yeah, exactly. yeah, same, same thoughts there. Well, Laurel, as we wrap up here for the student listening to this, maybe hopeful, right? Maybe this conversation gave them a little uh, hope and motivation that they can get into medical school. What sorts of uh, final words of wisdom do you have for that student out there on their journey to medical school? Um, final words. I mean, all kinds of people get into medical school. I say it at many presentations. If I knew the, the formula, and I'm sure you would say the same, if I knew the exact formula to get you into medical school, I would sell that and I would <laughs> retire very quickly. But there is no one profile of an applicant. There's all kinds of people that go to medical school. You've got your, you know, barely 21 year olds. You've got 40 something year olds. 
I mean, people have had all kinds of, you know, your traditional applicants, people have had whole careers and go to medical school. Um, people who have two parents who are doctors and people who've barely ever been to the doctor. I mean, you've got every kind of person with every life experience that goes to medical school. So, you know, it is, it's hard work getting into medical school. It's hard work being in medical school. It's hard work being a doctor. So, you know, if you're willing to do the work and do what you need to do, you know, there are, med there are so many medical schools with different missions, different applicant profiles that they're looking for. You know, so I think it is possible for a lot of people. Um, and if that isn't how things end up, there's so many great careers in healthcare and other options that people don't consider because they just get that tunnel vision that they have to be a doctor. So, you know, really explore healthcare beyond just MDs and DOs and, you know, figure out what your options are and, and seek advice and listen to the advice <laughs> that that's the most important is actually listening to the advice. Gotta listen to it. Mm -hmm. All right. So there you have it again, Laurel Poole, the director of admissions at UCF College of Medicine in Orlando, Florida. Hopefully this was a great episode for you to give you some insight into one medical school. Now, remember what Laurel says, you cannot take what she says and apply it to every other medical school out there. And that's one of the more frustrating things for you and for me as someone who's trying to help all of you through this process is that every medical school has a little bit of a different process. And the the big picture stuff is very similar, but there's a lot of nuance in this process and something that Laurel said that I don't necessarily agree with, but is the process at her school is that they look at volunteer clinical experience as something that they that they value in an application. And I don't like that because not everyone has the privilege to volunteer their time. A lot of you out there need to work, need to get paid. And so I, I don't like that, but that's something at their school that they value. Okay, great. Now we know that. And we can adjust for that if UCF is, is a school that you really want to go to for one reason or another. Now you know that. And that is the biggest part of this process that I am trying to expose is really just the transparency part. What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What do you value more? I wish every medical school would reveal their, their rubrics, right, as part of this process. Unfortunately, they don't. Uh, and so I, I love that Laurel came on and we had a conversation about the school and about the process to give you some of that insight. Again, don't take this one conversation and try to apply to every single other medical school out there. Hopefully this was great information for you and encouraging you on your journey. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.